Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah. You're Jay talking live, midnight to five. Bradley Jay, good to be with you. When I came in, it was really raining and uh, probably still is. Dan Ray reported the same thing upon leaving. We're going to speak with a gentleman named Mark Obmasek. And this is on the book, The Storm on Our Shores. One Island, Two Soldiers, and the Forgotten Battle of World War II. And it turns out it took place on an Alaskan island. Did you know that? I bet you didn't. So let's let's uh, meet Mark. How you doing, Mark? Good, thanks. Well, we have the luxury of a lot of time, so why don't we first talk about the battle, and then we'll get into the personalities that you detail in the book. But we can we get the who, what, when, why, how, conditions, casualties, and all of the battle, like extreme detail? Uh, sure. Uh, I first found out about this story uh, when I was working on my first book, which was about competitive birdwatching, of all things. Uh, it turns out that in the 1980s, uh, the best place in North America to spot rare species of birds was this island, the westernmost island of Alaska called Attu. Maybe if you do crossword puzzles, you've heard of it, uh, A-T-T-U. Uh, it's so far out there, they actually curve the international dateline around it to keep North America on the same calendar page. And when I was looking into the history of this island, uh, I learned that the Japanese had invaded and conquered part of Alaska during World War II. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was the first U.S. soil lost since the War of 1812, or that I also didn't know it was the only ground battle of World War II fought on North America soil. And I definitely didn't know that it was the Battle of Attu had a casualty rate that was exceeded in the Pacific War only at Iwo Jima. And so the basics there were pretty interesting to me. Uh, but I'm not a war historian. I'm a, a journalist and I'm interested in people. And the more that I found out about the people who fought there and the circumstances they fought under, uh, I really got hooked on this story. Why was the island important? Why did the Japanese want it, and why did we care? Uh, well, the island itself uh, wasn't important. <laughs> that was the crazy thing. The only people who would think it was important 
are people who would sit in their offices in either Tokyo or Washington and look at a map, and they would see this spit of land at the confluence of the Bering Sea and the Pacific and think that this could make for a good forward base if Japan ever wanted to launch an attack on the west coast of the United States. The problem is that Attu has some of the worst weather on Earth uh, because it is at the confluence of the really cold Bering Sea and the warmer Pacific currents. Uh, it only gets about eight days a year that are free of either uh, snow or rain or sleet or fog. It is, it is a miserable place. Uh, and so the Japanese uh, decided in six months to the day after the invasion of Pearl Harbor that they would send a garrison of men to invade and conquer Attu and a few other Aleutian Islands. Who was there when the Japanese got there? No one? A few Eskimos? Well, uh, there's native Aleuts. There's about uh, four dozen uh, really people living off the land. Uh, they would go out and uh, take their sharp points in a kayak and hope to get a whale that would last the village through the winter. Uh, they were fox hunters. Uh, they would collect, uh, it's a treeless island, uh, and so they would collect driftwood that would uh, waft in from uh, places that had trees. There, nobody at Attu was armed. There was really no military reason to take it, but uh, Japan invested a garrison of 3,000 men to conquer this and started out to build an airstrip uh, with hopes of, you know, maybe advancing a forward campaign against the U.S., but that's when the awful weather of Attu set in, and people came. They, they used to call it uh, uh, the Aleutians of malaria, which was just this permanent condition of, uh, of, of nasty cold and hacking cough and flu, and it just it never went away. Uh, so there are only 48, the only 48 natives there? Yep, 48, and they could have, the Japanese could have taken that island with the bullhorn. Interesting. Uh, it was an unarmed island, and uh, but once they had it, they were kind of stuck with it uh, because they had taken more uh, territory from the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, they they didn't want to give it up. They used it as a propaganda victory. They could tell the people back home that uh, uh, even after Pearl Harbor, the war is still going well against the United States. And on the opposite way, um, the U.S. War Department had no interest whatsoever in publicizing that uh, the U.S. had lost more turf uh, to the or, or had just lost turf to the Japanese. And so uh, at first, the U.S. didn't even didn't even acknowledge that uh, the Japanese had taken Attu and, uh, and another uh, Aleutian Island. It was an embarrassing episode in, in the history of uh, the United States. How uh, big is Attu? And, what, and I'm curious how the Japanese uh, occupation there affected the, the natives. Sure. Well, uh, Attu is actually a pretty big island. It's about 350 square miles. Oh, man. Uh, 15, 15 times bigger than Manhattan. Uh, and it's, 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 it is, when you can see... Uh, it is stunningly gorgeous. Uh, it goes from sea level, and then they've got uh, volcanic mountains that top out at over 3,000 feet. And they go right up. About 95% of the island is ringed by cliffs. So it makes it a, a really difficult place to to live, much less to invade. Uh, so Attu, uh, 
and, and, then, and then the natives, uh, the natives ultimately were taken as prisoners of war. There were, as I mentioned, there were about four dozen uh, locals, uh, native Aleuts, uh, and then there was a uh, an outsider, uh, a school teacher, and her husband. Uh, the locals were herded up and sent to POW camps in northern Japan, where, I mean, Japan was really an awful place to be during the war. They didn't have food to feed their own people, much less uh, prisoners of war that came from an Alaskan island that nobody had heard of. And so uh, the native Aleuts, uh, <laughs> when, when, when the Japanese invaders came, that was for most native Aleuts, that was more people than they'd seen in their whole lives. It yeah. was a, a total life of isolation. I mean, the nearest, the closest uh, civilized town uh, even today is about 500 miles away. You know, wow. what's what's 500 miles from Boston? You know, that's uh, that's quite a ways away. Right, that's like uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, that's it's why a long ways. Just curious why they felt they needed. You probably don't even know this. Why the Japanese felt they needed to take these people prisoners prisoner. There's plenty of room for them just to do their thing and, and coexist. Yeah, they they didn't know what to do with them. Uh, they didn't know what to do with the people. They didn't know what to do with. The island. Uh, I think you know. Pretty soon, they figured out that uh, this that the, the, the I've, I've been to Atsu. The, the soils are really spongy. It's a crazy thing. It's almost like walking on a, a trampoline. The soils are like taffy. They're really sticky in places. How'd you, know, you get there? Volcanic muck. How'd you get there? Uh, well, I I went in uh, September on a trip with sixty minutes. Uh, they did a story that. Uh, was on a couple of weeks ago. They had to charter a plane from Anchorage uh, all the way out to Attu. It's fifteen hundred miles from fifteen hundred miles from Anchorage. Oh man! Uh, they, they, no, nobody had landed a plane there for two years. Uh, nobody had lived there for at least ten years. Um, it is it is out there, but it is spectacular. You mentioned in the book blunders involved here, battle wise. Can you talk about those before we get into the characters? Uh. Sure. It, it was it was almost a parade of errors uh, on both sides. Of course, the Japanese really erred, I think, in the first place by taking the island. Uh, once they had it, they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, there was really no strategic reason to, to hang on to this place at to. But if they gave it up, then that would be seen as uh, an embarrassment, you know, that they would have lost something that they had uh, uh, spent a lot of resources to to gain. So that was the problem on the Japanese side. On the American side, uh, the Americans were were not prepared at all for what they encountered on Attu. For starters, uh, they took a uh, they took troops who had been training in the Mojave Desert in California and preparing to fight Rommel and the Nazis in the desert sands of North Africa. And instead, they diverted them and sent them to fight in Alaska. And, and, and they sent them wearing, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, gear that had been set up for the desert. Uh, all, all these men were prepared to, uh, to go without water, to, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to try to uh, cool themselves down. And instead, uh, they went to a place where every day they had water blasted in their face. Um, and, and they had to huddle from, from the cold. Uh, the United States also had a, a, a big uh, problem with arrogance also. Uh, they knew that there was a garrison of about 3,000 men uh, on this uh, island, the Japanese uh, soldiers on this island. 
And the U.S. generals predicted that they would need only about three days and 15,000 U.S. troops to take the island back. When, in fact, what happened was because the Japanese were such tenacious and skilled uh, and desperate uh, fighters, what was supposed to have taken uh, a battle of three days ultimately ended up taking more than three weeks. And as we, you know, the, the casualty rate here was was ferocious. Uh, not only were the the Japanese uh, really strategic uh, and and smart uh, fighters, but on Antu, uh, the weather is so awful that you don't just fight the enemy; you fight the elements itself. And so the U.S. had dozens and dozens of men who lost their limbs to amputation uh, to this malady called uh, trench foot which comes from standing around all day in uh, foxholes that are filled with freezing water uh, oh, and, and and these and these these men have got desert boots and so they're losing their feet they're losing their toes they're losing their you know all, all their extremities because of frostbite and, uh, and 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 they're and they're fighting troops who are hiding in the fog that goes up and down. I mean, the Japanese had spent their time fortifying the mountaintops, and uh, what they would do is they would go up and down the mountains based on where the fog line was. And so U.S. troops described trying to take this island back from the Japanese. They said it was like trying to shoot birds out of a cloud. Uh, they couldn't see who was shooting at them. Meanwhile, the U.S. troops here are stuck down in the valley floors with this volcanic muck, uh, this, this soil that was so sticky, so so gooey and, and deep, they couldn't get equipment on shore. Um, and in fact, uh, at times, U.S. troops were fighting for their lives, waging war against a, a really smart uh, enemy, uh, and they couldn't get food uh, inland. And so actually one of the people I wrote about at one point, uh, had to, he had to crawl on his belly to a creek where he caught a trout by hand to eat it. They... <laughs> They couldn't get food in. Wow. So you ask what mistakes were made. Uh, it's a long, long list. It sounds like most of it was a mistake. So this went on for a year? Well, the Japanese uh, took it in uh, uh, June of 1942, and, and the U.S. decided to come take it back in May of 1943. Okay. Now let's but, focus uh, the, down the on the... On the... The, the, the intensive part of the battle itself was about three weeks. Okay. So now we take a look at the people that you focus on. So can you first explain how you came to focus on these two individuals, one from each side? Sure. Uh, well, the, 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 the first guy uh, who I really got, who really got me going on the story uh, was a man named Nobuo Tatsuguchi, who was born in Hiroshima, but was a devout Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist. And he decided to move from his native Japan to California. And he attended college at Pacific Union College in Napa Valley, California. It's a Seventh-day Adventist school. And then went to medical school at Loma Linda University in Southern California. And then was an intern. Uh, he did his surgical residency at White Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles. Uh, when he came to America, he, he went by the name Paul. And so Paul Tatsuguchi uh, loved America, actually. He really loved the, the freedom and the chaos and, and, and the mix of people and the feeling of the open road and, and just 
the, the, the feeling that uh, he was in a place where people were really driven and pushed to succeed instead of being focused on, on not failing, as seemed to be the case so often you know, back home in his, his day of Japan. So he loved America so much that he brought his girlfriend over from Japan and proposed to her at Yosemite National Park. Uh, they got married in Los Angeles and went off on one of the first Greyhound bus trips from Los Angeles and ended up on their honeymoon all the way in Niagara Falls. I mean, what, American, what more American thing can you do during that era but honeymoon in Niagara Falls? Yeah. They get back, and there's a there's a telegram waiting for him in Los Angeles saying that uh, uh, his parents have died while he was off on his honeymoon, and his brother panicked and sold one of his sisters into a brothel in Manchuria. And so Katsuguchi <laughs> and his new wife uh, raced back to China to buy his sister out of a brothel. And, of course, when he's back in Japan, that's when Pearl Harbor happened. And so Tatsuguchi is conscripted against his will to fight for Japan against the nation he loves, America. Man, what bad luck. Really if, if you have this information, that would be great. If you don't, I understand. When you say his parents died and his brother panicked and sold his sister, that seems to need a little more elaboration. Like, How does one – I can see panicking, but – Selling your sister to a brothel in China. Uh, believe it or not, it was actually fairly, I, I won't say it was common, but it wasn't unheard of in Japan. I mean, women were treated really in an awful way. Uh, and, you know, for some families, especially families in, in uh, poor families in rural Japan, uh, they would do that. There were there were definitely other families who had sold daughters into yeah. a life of prostitution to be able to support the family. So it was. Uh, so I guess you know, maybe I, his parents. Uh, I, I I can't I can't justify. Okay, it. his parents it, were but... probably his support, and he lost that support, so he needed money, and he sold his sister. Okay. Uh, yeah. I if 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 you want to explain it that way, I guess that uh, okay. I, I I find it hard to explain, but okay. Yes. So. Bad luck for Paul. He's over there. He loves America. Now he has to fight America. Uh, not only that, but he is a he's such a devout Christian. His faith, Seventh-day Adventists, they are morally opposed to war. And so he's a pacifist. I mean, he's so opposed to war. If if he were in the United States, you know, he would have been a conscientious objector. But of course, you know, Japan doesn't uh, they don't believe in uh, conscientious objector. And so uh, he kind of. Uh, settles his conscience by saying that, yes, uh, he's been drafted. Yes, he's in the Imperial Army, but uh, no, uh, he's not going to wage war. He is a surgeon, and he is going there to heal and not to fight. But he still faces enormous distrust. You know, he's been in the United States so long that people in Japan just don't trust him. You know, they, they worry that he's a spy. I mean, he's been Americanized. He's wearing American-style clothes and he speaks fluent English, and I mean, Japan, you know, an island country was always, uh, for centuries, actually, really isolated, and uh, and he is one of the few Japanese who's actually seen what Japan would be up against in war. You know, he knows uh, he knows not only the the spirit of of American people, but also the great industrial might. Uh, you know, Japan had so few natural resources, and yet America. Uh, you know, could almost uh, fuel its uh, 
uh, its uh, planes and its ships uh, at will. There is so much oil and and, uh, and, and and lumber and just all the natural resources that you need to prosecute a big war. And so Tatsuguchi was not only morally opposed to any kind of war, but pragmatically, uh, he just didn't see any way that Japan could beat the country he loved, America. Okay, so let's, I, I need to do a break. And... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's pick up where we left off, Mark. You were, you were talking about the uh, medic on the Japanese side. Now we're going to get to know the soldier on the other side that uh, was involved with him, and you can tell how. Sure. Uh, his name is Dick Laird, and he grew up really poor. I mean, really poor in Appalachia. Uh, he moved something like 10 times by the time he was 12 years old to different coal mining camps. Uh, by the age of 14, he was forced to drop out of school to help support his family. So he started working as an underground coal miner at age 14. By age 16, uh, he was an explosives expert, uh, working underground and, and setting, off, setting off the charges that, uh, that, that, that went through the, the coal seams. And so uh, Laird, uh, he's getting hurt. Uh, his friends are getting, are getting maimed and, and, and some getting killed. And so he decides ultimately that he can keep mining coal underground or he can do something safer, in his mind safer, which is to sign up for the Army. And he actually lies about his age to uh, sign on early uh, to the Army, and uh, it's a life that suits him. For the first time, uh, he is getting three regular meals a day, and he really – he likes the life. Um, he's training in uh, Southern California uh, to fight Rommel and the Nazis in, in North Africa uh, until his whole uh, – until all of his troops uh, get this alternate order that they are getting shipped out of San Francisco and they're headed north uh, to the Aleutian Islands of Alaska where Japan has uh, invaded and taken uh, the first uh, – it's the first U.S. soil lost since the War of 1812, this place called Atu Island. Yeah. And so Laird heads out. Uh, there is a U.S. invasion force of about 15,000 men. Uh, they uh, are landing on this island that a garrison of 3,000 men, including Paul Nobuo Katsuguchi, a, a Japanese uh, surgeon who had been trained in American medical schools, uh, he's Katsuguchi's on this island, and uh, he starts writing a diary. Uh, and the diary is a pretty remarkable document because it describes what it is like to be on the receiving end of the most ferocious fighting force in the history of the world. Uh, he is performing surgeries and being shot at. Uh, he is suturing patients. Uh, while he's in a cave, and he is ducking from shrapnel that's coming in. And so uh, it's a firsthand account of what it's like to be on 
on the short end uh, of a battle. And so ultimately uh, there are, there's a garrison of 3,000 Japanese men. Uh, the U.S. has blockaded the island. Laird and 15,000 American troops come and invade. And finally, after three weeks of really awful, heroic, incredible uh, fighting, uh, the Japanese, uh, the Japanese uh, 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 commander realizes that all all is lost. Uh, they are. Uh, running out of uh, ammunition, they're running out of food, they're running out of hope. And so he gathers five, the Japanese commander gathers 500 survivors together, including Paul Tatsuguchi, and orders them on a bonsai attack, which turns out to be one of the biggest bonsai attacks of all of World War II. And so these, these 500 men take off in the pre-morning gloom, and uh, Dick Laird, uh, wakes up that morning, hears the howling, looks up above him, and sees that a squad of eight Japanese soldiers has captured a really key American mortar. And the Japanese are spinning that mortar around so that it doesn't point anymore at the front lines. They are turning it back so that it points on the American troops themselves. Laird uh, pulls out a grenade, pulls the pin, waits a couple seconds, throws it. As another grenade runs up, looks to see what happens and finds that uh, not all the squad of eight Japanese soldiers are dead. He finishes that. Uh, he instantly scrambles for information. He wants to know what is happening here. You know, do, do, Can he discern any secret plans, any secret military plans that the Japanese might have? And he looks around and he finds on the ground. For starters, he finds a book. And he opens it up, and that book is filled with names and addresses of people in California. This is the address book of Paul Nobuo Tatsuguchi, and the names and addresses are his former classmates at medical school there. And Laird also finds another document, uh, which is written in Japanese. Laird stuffs it in his pocket and continues to go on fighting to repel this uh, Japanese bonsai attack. He ships that uh, document, handwritten in Japanese, to a translator. And he's really hoping that he may have, you know, found some secret strategy that will help the U.S. defeat the Japanese in this battle. What comes back from the translator, however, isn't military strategy. In some ways, it's even more powerful because it's a document that shows that Paul Tatsuguchi loved his wife and he really missed his daughters. And he didn't want to be in Alaska any more than... U.S. troops wanted to be in Alaska. And so this, this, this diary goes on. It's like the World War II version of going viral. It's passed from U.S. soldier to U.S. soldier hundreds, thousands of times. I found, I found 10 different versions of this uh, diary because people kept uh, transcribing it and passing it around. And, you know, many times they would just make a little change. But it really it just changed the the impression that so many American troops had all their training in boot camp, Dick Laird's training, all the American troops training at boot camp were that these, the Japanese soldiers were these, these ruthless, heartless killers. And instead you could read the diary and see that this guy wasn't that different from the Americans themselves. I mean, Laird himself, uh, who won the silver star, the third highest honor you can win for 
bravery in the U.S. Army. He won the Silver Star, and he had been forced at age 14 to drop out of school to help support his family as an underground coal miner. And Laird is just crestfallen because he realizes that he's killed a guy who's achieved the pinnacle of academic success. I mean, he's a really accomplished surgeon who's been through med school and everything. And so Laird, uh, that night, has nightmares. And he has nightmares for days and weeks and months and years. And and actually decades after uh, the war, uh, Laird goes home and, you know, starts a family and and builds a successful career in, in Tucson, Arizona. But in some ways... You know, just it's it's years later, but so much of his life seems defined by what he did for three weeks on this island, Atu. And then many the years later, especially we... what he did in the one day. The American soldier, the American war hero, the Silver Star winner, uh, Dick Laird, who found the diary, uh, just has these. He, he's he's racked by it. He can't really, he can't get away from it. Just years later, he still has nightmares over this battle. And so finally, uh, he decides to try to find the family of the man he killed, and he does. He finds the daughter, uh, the daughter who was not born yet. Paul Tatsuguchi, the Japanese surgeon, uh, his wife was actually pregnant when he was shipped off to war. And so he had never even met his daughter. Um, in fact, his diary, in some ways, he, he just he, – he, it, it's heartbreaking. He bids farewell to the – daughter he had never met and so dick laird the american soldier who killed paul tatsuguchi who found the diary uh shows up at the daughter's door one day in los angeles and he's nervous uh he's in some ways not quite sure what he's doing there um he just kind of wants to ease his conscience i think and and he starts kind of rambling he's got no plan and starts talking about how he's retired to tucson and he grows these these orchids, and uh, he's got kids of his own, and and finally the the daughter who's got twins of her own, and you know she she's an American citizen. Uh, she finally says, "Oh, <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm not really sure why you're here, but it's time for you to go." And as she walks him out to his car, Dick Laird kind of turns over his shoulder and says, "Oh, by the way, I'm the one who killed your father." And then he drives off. And the daughter, Laura Davis, is just is is racked. Uh, she had really only known her father as pictures on a wall. Never met him. Uh, he died before she had said even her first word. And so she kind of recommits herself. I mean, she's got her hands full uh, trying to raise twins, but she recommits herself to find out not only how her father had lived, but especially uh, how he had died in Alaska. And so she does. She spends a number of years investigating her father's life and finally comes to conclude that there was a reason that this man, Dick Laird, this American serviceman, had shown up at her door one day. She concludes that he is bearing this burden and that he feels guilty for killing the wrong man at the the wrong time or at least uh, another father, uh, a man who didn't want to be there any more than he did. And so she arranges a lunch with him. She goes to lunch with the man who killed her father. And they have a really 
I guess, awkward but kind of cordial lunch. And at the end, go their separate ways, and they both breathe some relief. But Laura goes home and realizes that he still is carrying a burden. Yes, he killed her father, but he just can't get over it. And she, Laura, sits down that night and writes one of the most moving letters I've ever seen. And she grants the American servicemen forgiveness. And Laird receives the letter, and he cries. And that night, for the first time in years, he's able to sleep without nightmares. And so the daughter of the man he killed grants him atonement. And I just, uh, you know, for me, I, I just, I, 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 I came away with this. We, we live in such divided times. We do. And I just came away thinking that these people, these families were enemies in war. They were enemies in war. They, one killed the other, and yet they could figure it out. They found a way to figure it out. They found a way to, to find peace. And I just think that we can do better. You know, we can, we as a society can do better. You know, we can look to, these are, these are you know, ordinary people thrust into extraordinary circumstances. And I just, uh, it's just such an example, I think, of how there's basic humanity. They might be an enemy. I mean, it's, it's easy to kill in war. It's easy to kill an enemy. But it's hard to kill a man. Right. And when you take away the symbol, there's just not that much different from us in a lot of ways. I wonder what the takeaway is in terms of how, as you say, how to do better. Perhaps... Anyone who sends people into war should be a soldier themselves so they understand that kind of, what's at stake. I don't really know how to use this information and how to use the material here to, to figure out how to do better, but I guess we'll leave that up to all the readers who are going to get this book. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it, Bradley. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. And as we mentioned, you can get this right now on Amazon. It's called The Storm on Our Shores and you just heard from Mark Obmasek. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.